On May 14, 1998, I was sitting on the floor of our TV room, watching the series finale of Seinfeld. I'd never seen the show before. My 90s sitcoms of choice included Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Friends, but my parents were having a dinner party and I was bored out of my mind. So I joined some of our house guests tuning in as Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, and George almost died in a plane crash and found themselves in a small, boring Massachusetts town, not unlike mine. The characters break the town's Good Samaritan law and are subsequently put on trial for, well, basically being a bunch of assholes their whole lives. See, the great thing about robbing a fat guy is it's an easy getaway, you know? They can't really chase you. <laughs> I remember vividly as one of the witnesses who comes to testify about Seinfeld's character walks down the courtroom aisle in Pakistani clothes and me thinking, whoa, wait a minute. Is, is that what I think it is? Babu! You're Pakistani, right? Yes, Pakistani, yes. Babu, may I say something? Of course, you're a very smart man, I listen. You might serve some dishes from your native Pakistan. This was Babu Bhat, the Pakistani restaurant owner on the show. And as soon as he opens his mouth and his apparently Pakistani accent comes out, the sitcom audience laughter begins. It kept going as he did what I'd later learned was his characteristic finger-waving, calling Jerry a very bad man. You bad man! You very, very bad man! My first instinct was to laugh along with the rest of the audience. And I'm pretty sure there were a few other people in the room who were laughing too. Other Pakistanis like my parents, who had now been in the U.S. for some time, had built a life here, or whatever. But there was one couple that didn't find it funny at all. An older couple. Relatives of my father who were in town for a visit. I can still remember to this day the look of disgust and sadness. One of them said something to the effect of, God damn, so this is what Americans think about us? They just laugh at our clothes and our accents? I was a bit confused and taken aback, but kept watching and attributed their reaction to them being old and weird and unable to take a joke. I kept laughing all through my teenage years, as friends would do the accent when talking about my grandmother or my mom. Let's be honest, I did it too. And even found it amazing when the first brown Canadian comic Russell Peters started to become an internet sensation for his routine about his father. One time my dad's car broke down, he called me and goes, son, the car has broken down. I go, but what's wrong with your car? If I knew that, I'd be a mechanic. You mean mechanic. Don't be stupid, there's no K in it. I thought it was something all brown people were supposed to laugh at. The accent, the clothes, the stereotypes. I thought all of it was fair game. Eleven years after that Seinfeld episode, my band, made up pretty much of brown dudes, and the one I've been hinting at this whole series, was about to go up on stage at a concert in Toronto, one of the most diverse cities in North America. The audience was pretty brown too. In fact, the whole reason the show was happening was because we'd spent the last few years building an online community for so-called brown kids like us. The act before us were two sick MCs, and as they were performing, I yelled out from the crowd, hey man, you look like you drove a cab down here, or something to that effect, thinking that they, like most of the brown people I'd encountered in my life, would find it as hilarious, tongue-in-cheek, and ironic as I did. One of them immediately stopped, and said on the microphone, Yo man, that's fucked up. My dad drove a cab. From Rafaelion Media, I'm Shah Jahan Khan, and this is the King of the World podcast, a historical, cultural, and personal look back at the 20 years since 9-11. Episode 4, The Way They Saw Us, Muslims and the Media. For those that weren't around in the 90s, it was a big time of transition in the media world, at least technologically speaking. People were starting to get the internet in their homes. While the vast majority of us were marveling at cool stuff like cordless telephones for your house's landline, cell phones had like literally just been invented. The affordable, transportable cellular telephone only at Radio Shack. Cable TV was becoming more ubiquitous, 
DVDs and CDs were making VHS and cassette tapes extinct. And while some groups were starting to make strides in front of the camera, brown people were stuck mostly in the same old stereotypes and tropes that had been around since the dawn of Hollywood. The landscape of media pre-September 11th, as far as I remember, as far as I remember, there was none. (laughs) There was no representation (laughs) of brown people in media. Taz Ahmed is an artist and activist from L.A. who, like me, is a product of that 90s American pop culture. And when there was, it was always like an auntie-uncle character or someone with an accent. There was never anyone who was born and raised in America. There was a lot of orientalization happening, a lot of exotification happening. Quick note, Taz and I are both from South Asian backgrounds, so from here on out, you'll hear us use the term brown a lot. To be clear, non-white representation is bad across the board, but Taz and I are just focusing on this specific area because we can relate with each other. Among other things, Taz is the co-host of the immensely popular podcast called Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. It's a fucking awesome title and very indicative of how Muslims have been viewed in America. It's a really simple way of saying something really powerful, namely that Muslims, like other groups and ideas, have historically been designated to one of two camps. Shitty cultural representation and its ramifications although certainly exacerbated for Muslims by the 9-11 attacks, are not a new discussion, nor are they exclusive to Muslims. There are countless movies, shows, books, and perhaps more importantly, schools of thought that subscribe to this familiar trope of heroes and villains, good and bad, civilized and savage, probably because that's one of the most basic plots out there. An example of that good Muslim, bad Muslim dichotomy at play was actually one of my favorite movies as a kid. Aladdin, or as it's known in the U.S., Aladdin. When Aladdin came out in 1992, it was a huge hit, to say the least, and attracted millions of kids and their parents, including a lot of people from the Muslim community. That's because Aladdin is based on a story from a collection of folk tales called 1001 Nights, also known in English as the Arabian Nights. It's considered a literary classic. Some say one of the greatest Islamic contributions to world literature. So yeah, Muslim kids were excited to see it and themselves on screen, finally, in a positive light, in a Disney animation, no less. I was really excited about Aladdin. I saw myself in that movie, even though it feels so silly to say that, but like, I was so excited to see like a brown princess finally and to see someone with dark hair, not blonde hair. But right from the start, its portrayals of Muslims, and Arabs in particular, were problematic. Oh, I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. That's like the first minute of the movie. Literally a guy on a camel in the desert singing about how his people are so barbaric they'll cut off your ears for shits and giggles. But, you know, no biggie. You know how Disney songs just become embedded into the minds of kids? My sisters and I used to sing the songs in the car all the time. Well, generations of young people have grown up singing those fucking lyrics. In fact, at the time, because so many people complained, especially Arab Americans... Disney ended up changing the lyrics for home videos and all future releases. But really, that was just one of many problems with the movie. So many of the Arab characters were portrayed negatively and with ethnic stereotypes. Big, hooked noses, beady eyes, violent and grotesque. But not Aladdin or the princess, who had American accents and, quote, looked like white American teenagers, end quote, according to film critic Roger Ebert. But the movie is not quite up there with Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Well, I think it's because um, the boy is kind of lackluster. And then the problem is who can compete with Robin Williams? He just blows everyone out of the water. Walks away with the movie. Regardless, Aladdin went on to make half a billion dollars at the box office, win two Oscars, and a Grammy Award, all the while illustrating to millions of impressionable children that most Muslims are barbaric, shady, or just one-dimensional. For brown kids like me and Taz, even though they were horrible representations of us, we were just thrilled that someone who looked vaguely like us was on the big screen. 
When I would watch TV when I was younger and I saw a brown character, even though it sucked, it was still really cool. You know, like even though Apu was patanking and like racist and a terrible character, like it was a brown character on TV. I would like to see this money spent on more police officers. I have been shot eight times this year. And as a result, I almost missed work. Short circuit. There was a brown guy, you know, like Gandhi. Everyone was talking about Gandhi. They were like, oh, you're brown. Let me bring up this movie Gandhi that just came out. Us brown kids from this generation know exactly which characters she's referring to. That's just how few brown characters there were on TV. One of the worst offenders during that time was Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Indiana Jones, the monk, like eating the monkey heads. And I remember getting that a lot when I was a kid too. Like, do you, does your family eat monkey heads? And I had no idea what they were talking about. Ah, dessert. Chilled monkey brain. All of these things were just so ridiculous. But at the same time, for me, I was like, oh, I'm being represented in media. Taz is hitting on a really important generational divide. The best in comedy is on the WB11. When we were coming of age in the 80s and 90s, those of us that were lucky enough to have cable had a larger selection of shows like Freshmen's of Bel Air, Family Matters, Full House, the whole Nickelodeon and Nick Jr. catalog, and of course, VH1's Behind the Music. And there were a handful of cliche brown characters with bit parts. But when it came to Muslim characters with any real depth or nuance, there just weren't any. Regardless, just like Taz was saying, at that point, I think I was so desperate to see something even tangentially like me that I could see something of myself in Babu's character in that Seinfeld finale, who in reality was played by actor Brian George, who was neither Pakistani nor Muslim. I think it would be easy to lay all the blame on someone like Brian when he was just a product of his environment and at the end of the day, trying to do his job. A job in an industry that has always thrived on simple portrayals of complicated people. Just take a quick walk through Hollywood history. Whether it's the 1921 silent film The Sheik that includes title slides referring to the land of peace and flame and a white lead assuring people that he is not a savage because of his education abroad, Kalima chants in Temple of Doom that Taz was mentioning. Kalima. Kalima. Or the classic Muslim Achilles heel film The Siege, just over two decades ago that is filled with tired juxtapositions of prayer and terror, among many others. It was basically unnatural for Muslims not to be the bad guys. As we got closer to 9-11, Muslim representation in American media became even more abysmal. We were basically an afterthought at the whims of white Hollywood executives trying to capitalize on pop culture and had very little say in how we were portrayed. Now imagine you're a Muslim actor trying to break into Hollywood after 9-11. We were basically terrorists or swarthy villains that oppressed women. There was so much of that good Muslim, bad Muslim stuff going on, and the only parts really available were on shows like 24 or Sleeper Cell, where you were just like Muhammad or Ahmed the terrorist. I'll never forget watching Insider by Michael Mann. If you remember that, The Insider. One of my favorite actors of the last decade, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know firsthand, is Dominic Reigns, originally from Dallas, Texas, by way of Iran. He's talking about the movie Insider, which had a huge Hollywood theatrical release in 1999. I didn't see that, no. There was this horrible moment at the very beginning of the film where they were completely oblivious and they had absolutely no shame whatsoever. Basically, the main character, Al Pacino's character, was interviewing some kind of terrorist cell, right? This is about insider journalism and all that. I can't conduct an interview from back there. And basically end up talking to this guy. Well, his, I guess, henchmen or whoever it is, or the two people who are arguing each other, one half, one's talking in Farsi and one's talking in Arabic. That's how they're talking to each other. They actually did not even take the time to go, oh, you speak Farsi, you speak Arabic. Oh, we need an Arabic actor, not someone. They just didn't care. It was just like, oh, yeah, let's just take someone. They sound the same, so just have them speak. 
That's yeah. that's what it was. Like that that's where we've come from. <laughs> it should be kind of obvious by now that names are sort of a big deal to me and a huge part of this show. Dominic's birth name is Amin Nazimzadeh. Amin means trust, and Nazimzadeh means child of the school principal. While he was in college, his elder brother convinced him to go in for an audition for a TV movie called Saving Jessica Lynch. Amin booked the role of an Iraqi guerrilla officer and soon got his first agent. He moved out to L.A. in 2004 and started making the rounds, but it was pretty tough right away. As, as an actor, it became very clear to me that I'm always going to be viewed a certain way. You know, your name is going to tie you to some place and the way you look is going to tie you. And I always wanted to shed that and just go, I'm an actor. I can do anything you want me to do. I can be anyone you want me to be. Give me the opportunity. Amin did become a, quote, working actor in L.A., but the kinds of roles he was getting weren't super complex. His second credit was on the immensely popular show 24. Make a sound and I will blow your brains out all over the windshield. Right alongside Agent Jack Bauer, played by the actor Kiefer Sutherland, as, you guessed it, one of two alleged terrorist conspiring brothers. I don't know how else to ask this question, so I'm just going to ask it. I didn't watch it because I kind of didn't want to, but what was it like being in the Flight 93 movie, being one of the hijackers? Yeah, definitely don't watch that. That was just like... I'm, I, I'm not planning know. on it. The movie Flight 93, written by Nevin Schreiner and directed by Peter Markle, was the first Hollywood film to draw its narrative directly from the 9-11 attacks. Dixie, flight's down. Down as in landed? Negative. Down as in some field. Roger that. Look, man, I was 22 years old. I was new to the business. I got three weeks of work in Vancouver, making, I don't know, something like 3,500, four grand a week. And at that time, you're just like, oh my God. You know, but more so, you know, you, you got to live and whatnot. And, and this was back in 2005, right? So I, I jumped on it and I wasn't thinking down the road. It was just like, you know, like anybody in our business at that time from our background is going like, you know, where can I get the next job? You know, terrorist shirt, you know, what do you want us to do? I mean, it was all over the place, you know, post 9-11, you know, all these shows were coming out and movies were coming out that were, you know, they needed their bad guys. And a bunch of us, you know, who were in the business at that time, were making our bread from portraying these bad guys. Muslim male characters were cab drivers, terrorists, or swarthy villains. Muslim female characters were submissive and voiceless, with their hijab or burqa being the most important thing about them. And as far as non-binary Muslim representation, you wouldn't even know that it's a thing. Amin was quickly learning that in an industry where people like you don't call the shots, these types of roles were about as good as it's going to get. I'll never forget walking into a casting session and I had a, a really great read. I had a fantastic audition. There's a bunch of people in the room and they were like, that was really good your name where, where where's that from and i was like oh that's uh, I'm, I'm i'm iranian and he just looked at me and goes oh okay thank you and in that moment i saw in his face that nope you're not going to be the guy for this part because he just sat back and that was the end of the conversation he went from like interested i i want to get to know you and then as soon as he knew you know where i was from conversation ended and i came out of there and I knew it, and I felt it. For those of you who have never been in a casting session before or have never attended an audition, it's sort of like a job interview. But if you had to hop right into your first day of work and do it perfectly as they literally watch your every move, it's an art, and there's nothing like having a great audition. So just imagine if you did everything right, you checked all the right boxes, had all the right skills, but then you suddenly realize they don't care about any of that. I said, fuck that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that. I'm going to beat you at your own game. So I thought at that time, the way I was going to do it is going to change my name. And I'm going to come up with a name that no one can tie to any place or anywhere. It's just going to be just out of the ether. Let it confuse you. 
because all it's going to do is give you an opportunity to see my work. And that's all I want you to see is my work. And that's when Amin Nazimzadeh became Dominic Reigns, the ethnically ambiguous actor that could now be cast as anybody. Sort of like the way I tried to change my name from Shah Jahan to the cooler sounding Malik that everyone knew how to say. But in Dominic's case, it was an attempt to fucking get work that he knew he was losing out on. And things picked up for him. In 2007, he got a huge breakout recurring role, not as a terrorist, not as a violent person, but as a doctor on General Hospital's night shift, a highly coveted role for any actor. Studies have shown that most Americans get their first and, well, probably lasting impressions about Islam and Muslims from the media. And American Muslims wanted a seat at the table. The early 2000s were a rebirth of sorts. We started to see a new wave of Muslim entertainers, politicians, and others in the public eye. In comedy, you had stuff like the Allah Made Me Funny tour. And truthfully, people, we have to educate America, okay? We have holidays. Eid. That's right, we can't compete, man. At Christmas, everybody's going crazy. Halloween, they're giving away free candy. We, we tell our kids, you're going to fast for a month. Folks like Asif Manvi became mainstream faces on late-night television. Does asbestos mean something different in French than it does in English? Because in English, it means slow hacking death. Oh, yeah. It means that. Yeah. You had Amna Nawaz and Fareed Zakaria breaking into television newsrooms. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. And books like The Kite Runner by Khalid Hosseini and The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsen Hamid became international bestsellers. 38 million of your first two books worldwide were sold. Do you ever have to pinch yourself and say, oh my goodness, this is, yeah, this is my life now? I thought when my book was coming out, the first one, I thought, so my cousins will read it because <laughs> if they don't read it, I'm never going to forgive them. And in Canada, the sitcom Little Mosque on the Prairie debuted to record ratings in 2007, becoming the largest audience the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, had reached for an entertainment program in a decade. Also in 2007, the Pew Research Center released the results of the first ever poll of Muslim Americans and, quote, found them to be largely assimilated and happy with their lives. Newly elected Congressman Keith Ellison created a sensation last month. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, Keith Ellison became the first Muslim U.S. congressman. Ellison was able to overcome a last-minute smear campaign by his opponent, who tried to use the fact that he was Muslim against him. And in maybe one of the most iconic moments in American Muslim history, Ellison was sworn in on a Quran rather than a Bible. And not just any Quran. In a politically savvy move, Representative-elect Ellison has countered his critics with the plan to use a copy of the Quran once owned by Thomas Jefferson. That pissed off a lot of people, though. And you can definitely tell this if you take a look at the YouTube comment section of his swearing-in ceremony. Keith Ellison has gone on to have a remarkable career. Most recently, he was elected attorney general in Minnesota, where he prosecuted the murder of George Floyd. For me, I think it's perfectly legitimate to look at the core values of my faith, which happen to be quite universal, uh, and, um, and, and bring those to bear in my decision-making. So, yeah, there was this sea change of sorts when it came to Muslims in pop culture and in the public eye. But Islamophobia wasn't exactly over, and there's no better example of this than the presidential campaign of a young senator from Chicago. Imam Hussein Obama. Mm, mm, mm. I want to be fair, too. He probably is the best anti-American president the country's ever had. Throughout his campaign, his actual presidency, and beyond, Barack Obama was rumored to be a secret Muslim. Was he educated in a madrasa? Damn, look at this photo of him in traditional Kenyan dress. Oh, shit. Maybe his middle name is Muhammad, too? These rumors were so deep, pervasive, and systematically supported by right-wing media that in August 2010, a Pew Research poll showed that 18% of Americans and 30% of Republicans believed that Obama was a Muslim. I gotta ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not... No? 
No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma he's, a, he's, a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. What you're hearing is what was widely considered to be one of then-candidate John McCain's crowning political moments when he tried to correct a voter during the 2008 presidential campaign. I don't know. I don't think it was a crowning political moment at all, though. I mean, what if he had said something like, uh, ma'am, he's not Arab, uh, and he's actually not even a Muslim, but fucking, so what if he was? Prior to 9-11, many Muslims tended to vote Republican, attracted by their socially and economically conservative stances. In the 2000 election, American Muslims overwhelmingly voted for George W. Bush over Al Gore by a more than two-to-one margin. It's been reported that Muslims in Florida came out in droves to support Bush, a crucial state he won by just 537 votes that eventually gave him the White House. A strange and pretty sad coincidence is that there was supposed to be an initial meeting between the newly elected Bush administration and American Muslim leaders. It was supposed to happen at 3 p.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001. wears a hijab. Is her adherence to this Islamic doctrine indicative of her adherence to Sharia law, which in itself is antithetical to the United States Constitution? Following the 9-11 attacks, as anti-Muslim fear-mongering stuff really took hold in right-wing and conservative media, the Republican Party lost the support of American Muslims. So let's say there are 10,000 right-wing extremist terrorist acts every day. It still doesn't answer the question. Why are people coming to this country in the name of Islam killing Americans? And don't you think you should pause for a minute and reflect on what's gone wrong within your community? In 2004, more than 90% of Muslims voted for John Kerry. And in 2008 and 2012, Barack Obama received more than 85% of the Muslim vote each time. Just, just an aside to the Muslim community, if you don't want to be portrayed in a negative light, maybe don't burn people alive and set off bombs and things like that. Now terrorism and the jihadists are again on the move. Most Muslim nations are not joining with the West to confront that. Therefore, criticism of Islam's role on the world stage is certainly valid. The Muslim world needs to take a hard look at Whatever you feel deep down inside will end up in what you create. And that was no different for us American Muslim artists attempting to carve out space for ourselves post 9-11. For me, while all this was happening, I was struggling to keep my head above water. I had no idea that I was about to be right in the middle of this surge in Muslim creativity. Not just riding the waves, but making really, really big ones. Let's return to late 2004 for a second. The person known as Malik or Saj or Shah Jahan was sitting in the library of UMass Lowell wondering for like the fifth time if I was really going to last in college when an old friend walked in and forever changed my life. My first memory of you would probably be moving to Massachusetts when I was 16 and, and then seeing you probably in, in Wayland at the masjid on like a Sunday. Basim Osmani's mom and my mom decided that their two sons were just weird enough to maybe become friends. This was at a time when I was really into weed, cigarettes, and setting fires. <laughs> and Basim was a super slick goth kid with a leather jacket, long hair, and a ponytail, which he'd occasionally spike into a mohawk along with a face full of white makeup. I remember this one time we were both so bored of going to Sunday school classes at the mosque that we thought it would be hilarious if we hid in the closet of the classroom inside of a cardboard box. We were 16 years old at this time, so yeah, we were pretty weird. But it didn't really matter because we bonded over music right away. I had a mixtape that some kid at my high school had made me of like a bunch of random metal and hardcore type stuff. And we sat down in a car and we just like listened to it 
eating like whatever halal hot dogs and just chilling. It felt really good to be with somebody that just kind of got me, who didn't care that I was weird, was kind of weird himself, and made me excited and curious in a way that I'd forgotten how to do. The fact that we had both tried out college the first time only to move back home was also pretty serendipitous. That definitely helped because we didn't really know what the future held. Even though school wasn't working for Bossom, he had found some underground success with his band Malice in Leatherland, still one of the coolest band names I've ever heard. They had done some touring, played in New York City regularly, and had some pretty amazing band photos out there on the internet. But he was now looking to start a different type of musical project, something that spoke a bit more about the cultural and social moment we both found ourselves in at the end of 2004. So like 9-11 pretty much happened at the end of our time in high school or the middle of it. And then we go to college. I mean, I was definitely fucked up in a lot of ways. You might remember from the last episode, we talked about how we were in the midst of a new wave of Islamophobia in America. A lot of us felt this way and were either running away from it or trying to face it head on. And when it came to Bassem, he was ready to fuck shit up. It was just unavoidable, like just the atmosphere, you know, like in, in, in my class, there was like a girl whose like boyfriend had been deployed in either Iraq or Afghanistan and she would bring that up like I think that it was real you know it was um and there was flags everywhere and it was like I think a lot more um jingoistic you know during that era than any time since at this New Orleans army recruiting office and others the young and the brave are preparing to defend the land of the free we were inseparable on the UMass Lowell campus and that naturally led to the idea to start a band Bossom's drive was infectious. He was exactly the kind of friend that I had been waiting my whole life to meet. He challenged me to think bigger and not worry so much about whether people would like what we were doing or if our music was super polished sounding or whatever. The two of us were a perfect combination. He'd often have a fully formed lyrical idea or melody in mind, and I'd seamlessly put in the sort of guitar lines I'd always wanted to play. When it came to the music... And our first forays into writing with each other and stuff, like a big, big part of that was that the culture was so, so self-censored and like militarized and like about war. And he had a great band name already, the Kaminas. Kamina means the same thing in Urdu, Hindi, and Punjabi, a scoundrel or a person of a mean disposition. My favorite translation is Rapscallion, the Kaminas the perfect name for a Daisy punk band. The Caminas was like our adolescent response. It was like a shot in the dark out of like our garage kind of where we maybe didn't understand what we were getting into. With the start of the Caminas, my life finally meant something. For the first time maybe ever, I belonged somewhere. I was in a state of artistic and creative flow that I'd only heard about on music documentaries or read about in interviews with musicians that I admired. And the best part was that it wasn't just another band. This one was going to be our response to all the bullshit we saw all around us. As brown dudes, as Muslims, and it was going to help us define our own place in this fucked up country. And I was finding my voice through music, through the guitar, just like I had done when I first started playing. I'd always thought that although my parents were proud and happy when I started to get good at the guitar, they were hoping I'd eventually just chill out, study hard, get a great job, and eventually deliver them some grandkids. Turns out there was a little more behind why I got that guitar. That was my dream anyway, because when I was young, I always wanted to play the guitar. Do you know that? No. Oh my God, man. I used to tell daddy that I had this, I don't know, since I was, I think, probably a teenager or maybe even before that, I had always this affection towards the guitar. But can you imagine that? I was pretty speechless when Amma told me this. I didn't even interrupt her really at all, like I normally do with my guests or others during a conversation. I literally got chills for the rest of the time she talked about it. And then you started playing the guitar. So remember when I got you the first guitar? For some of the Desi 
parents it was like a shock that i would give a guitar to my kid because they think that guitar is like a crazy instrument and muslims or pakistanis should just be like either going to the masjid or doing something different not playing the guitar because it gives them the impression that it's going to be a, a the punk rock or something or whatever that's the kind of impression so when you wanted to play the guitar it was like a dream come true in myself Hearing Amma say this stuff really made me look at her in a new way. She's the only one out of her family that came to the U.S. and started a brand new life here. She had no idea what kind of family she was going to have, or what version of her family legacy would take shape in America. I've heard her say before that she was sort of shy and soft-spoken when she was younger, but the idea that she always wanted to play guitar and actually encouraged me to do it in spite of what she thought others would think is like a pretty punk thing, if you ask me. Listening to Amma's quote back also reminded me of another story. Soon after I'd come home from the hospital after my suicide attempt, I was having trouble, like, feeling normal. I was definitely under the close watch of my family. After a few days of kind of bumming around the house, I plugged in my electric guitar that was sitting in my childhood bedroom with me and started playing quietly, something I hadn't done in a while. She knocked on the door, smiled, and said, I'm so happy to hear you playing. Don't ever stop doing that. By early 2005, Bossom and I were madly writing and recording demos and throwing them up on the site formerly known as MySpace.com. This was the start of a new internet sensation. This was MySpace. Okay, maybe it still exists, but who really uses it anymore? When I look at the lyrics of our first album, which like we mostly wrote during that time in college together at UMass Lowell, like a lot of those lyrics I wrote in between classes or we'd write them or we'd end up at the, like there was one room at UMass Lowell dormitory that was kind of like the punk rock dorm where like a bunch of kids and bands happen to live. And we would be like the two brown kids at this like mostly white place. Our purpose was pretty clear, at least to the two of us. I think that those lyrics are really like, I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like a time capsule because I'm like so mad at corporations. I'm so bad at like the media. I'm so mad at like so much stuff. In a way, it's very, very punk. And I think it was more like directed out at the world. Like, fuck you. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Like. And man, that fuck you attitude was what I loved about punk music. Something that I had never listened to until Bossim schooled me by giving me mix CDs. And it totally made sense. We would hear about crazy shit on a daily basis, talk about it with each other, and it would inevitably influence the music we were making. We'd hear outrageous stories, like when folk singer Cat Stevens got put on a no-fly list and denied entry into the U.S. in 2004. Stevens, who in the late 1970s converted to Islam and changed his name to Yusuf Islam, has since done all sorts of amazing humanitarian work around the world. But yeah, I mean, his last name is Islam, so, you know, I guess they couldn't really handle that at the TSA. Things like this were happening all the time. I wondered what it might be like if one day the Kaminas were on a world tour and couldn't come back home because of some similar bullshit. I mean, this was the guy who literally wrote the song Peace Train, and he was denied entry to the U.S. The funny thing is, you can find Islamic influence all over American rap and hip-hop. If you listen carefully to foundational groups like Wu-Tang Clan, Brand Nubian, or even Rakim, you'll soon learn their connections to what many consider the real and true foundations of Islam in America, the Nation of Islam. It's a really important part of not just Muslim history, but American history. Yet another side of which we never learned about in school, or for that matter, in Sunday school, which for me was overshadowed by an Arab and South Asian-centric Islamic experience. 
Boston was kind of a social media wizard. He had a live journal where he had already spent a good amount of time meeting the kinds of people he couldn't find in high school. If you're curious, live journal was like kind of how Reddit is today. So as soon as we started throwing music up, people started to listen and spread the word. We were reacting to to the jingoism that we were seeing. And if that didn't exist, maybe we would not have been pushed in that direction for sure. With song titles like Sharia Law in the USA, Suicide Bomb the Gap, and Dishoom Baby, I think it's pretty hard to imagine that people weren't going to notice us. Taz, who we met at the top of the show, definitely noticed us. She was a contributor to the popular Desi blogging site called Sepia Mutiny when she started following and actively supporting our music. Yeah, live journal, right? There was like yeah, live yeah, journals yeah. and like all yeah. that. And like, didn't we have Friendster? I think it was on Friendster. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can't believe you have to remember like our where we were in social media land. There's been so many different things. It's wild. But I do remember writing about you guys on CP Muni. That is like a very yeah. clear recollection was that like uh, no one else was writing about you and i was like we have to write about these guys we have to write Mm. about brown music but there's no like american music which to me was Mm. like more like trying to figure out not like how do we exotify ourselves for the white audience but how do we claim our space here in america as brown people and i think that's what the caminas really did was that it was like a claiming of like musically saying that like we're not going to play sitar over drum beats and play this at like white spaces with, you know, white girls that were bindi, you know, like we're playing, mm. making brown music for brown kids to get wild in mosh pits. And that was like amazing to me because I'm always, I was always the one brown girl at mosh pits. And I was like, so like wanting and craving that kind of um, energy and vibe. We hadn't even finished an album yet. But articles started cropping up about us all over the place, on internet forums, in newspapers like the Boston Globe, and we even found ourselves on MTV. We are the Caminas. We are from Boston Muslim Bollywood punk. Hard to picture, perhaps, but it exists. Two met at college and absorbed Michael Muhammad Knight's Thukwa Corps. Fictional tales of a Muslim punk house of a friendly, pluralistic, Islamic bent. The Caminas felt like the best version of me. It felt like I was finally able to be my true self. A self that had pieces of all parts of me in there from all periods of my life. I felt seen. It seemed like it was okay to be a flawed person, like a work in progress whether as a young adult struggling with mental health and drug stuff, or a Muslim, or a Pakistani, or whatever I was. And so did folks like Taz, who became fans, even extended family. What the Caminas were able to do was like be able to like channel that fiery energy and the political like feelings for the brown kid. And it was like music that we knew that we needed something like that, but the Caminas were able to like actually like make it happen. And you know what? Even though I was still getting high, it felt like I was almost doing it normally for a little while when we first started. It was back to the fun, innocent songwriting while high type stuff that I had fallen in love with when I first started. And I mean, come on, what's music without a little fucking weed? We started to meet all sorts of like-minded people literally all over the country and even in online spaces all over the world. And it was cool. Although they weren't necessarily crazy about how much we were being associated with Islam in the media, and weren't necessarily blasting our music out of their car speakers, even my parents were psyched that their friends started to read about us. It seemed like I was doing something with my life, albeit still not going to my class as much. Within two years of Bassam and I reconnecting, a Canadian filmmaker reached out to us about shooting a documentary on the, quote, scene that we were a part of, what was being labeled Muslim punk or punk Islam. So... We spent the summer of 2006 on a giant green school bus purchased off eBay, touring the country, shooting a movie, living a completely surreal life. I couldn't believe it. It looked like maybe I was actually going to be a rock star.
jealous attention we were getting was unexpected, and we weren't really ready for it. Given the strides being made in Muslim American pop culture, you might think this is the point where the Kaminas sign a big record contract, get ultra famous, and go on tour with Green Day or something. In terms of having any foresight about how the media like, um, portrayed us as like maybe, like, oh yeah, here's some Muslims who are critical of Islam. Isn't that cool? Like, I think that that was something that we didn't want to be like out there. Like, here's some Middle Eastern dudes that sound like Slipknot. It just, it's just super, super like, here's a guy with a punk jacket who's Indonesian. Or like, you know what I mean? It's very much like definitely one of the most reductive things. You know what I mean? It's not that we didn't write punk songs about Islam, but we also wrote about capitalism, Bollywood-style train robberies, and just straightforward love songs, too. We became this caricature media story, where we were positioned by mostly white journalists as some sort of Muslim punk antidote to the otherwise backwards Muslim world, and that we could only have been created in the so-called West. A kind of Orientalist way of thinking. We also had non-Muslim members of the band, who rightfully felt super alienated and left out of a lot of the conversation. I guess it's kind of one of those catch-22s where, like it or not, we were making waves in the post-9-11 era. Maybe we weren't like commercially successful or whatever, but we had some dedicated and loyal supporters that gave us, gave me, more than I could have ever asked for. And I kind of expected that sense of accomplishment and fulfillment to just be it, be the end of everything I ever thought I lacked as a young, weird kid growing up in suburban Massachusetts. Being in a band is one of the coolest ways you can spend your young adulthood, especially when you're lucky enough to have even a moderate amount of success. And being in the Caminas filled whatever hole I had within me for a little while. But if you've been listening to the rest of the series, you'll know that I wasn't exactly the most stable person before all of this started happening. So it wasn't much of a surprise that trouble started creeping in. One thing that was really weird was that we got so much attention when we were 21, 22. Like, I think that that you had like a lot of personal demons, right, and issues. So like you were kind of, you were kind of like in and out of the picture or sporadically like in and out because you were like having like benders or you're having issues. I mean, like, um, have you ever watched the OC? So when you lost your virginity, I was I was playing Magic the Gathering. You still play Magic? Yeah, but not as much. Man, you have to watch it. So there's like a character in it named like Seth Cohen. Seth Cohen is kind of like has a hard time in the show with like um with like some so, with just like f- confidence i think you know what i mean and like just depression and like um anxiety i guess like and i think that as soon as he finds weed like one of the one of the storylines is he finds weed and like the first day he smokes weed he blows off his college interviews like his whole day worth of college interviews he just <laughs> blows them all off and then, like, uh, and then, like, you know, he runs away from his family, like, you know, like, in the middle of it, he just kind of, like, goes off on, like, a boat and sails up the Pacific Ocean. I haven't watched the OC yet. Sorry, Bossum. I swear I will. But this certainly sounds like me at that time. This disappearing stuff is something I used to do all the time. Like, I would just turn off my phone, ask my folks not to tell people if I was home, and literally just sit in my room alone in like a dark mental prison that it seemed I had created where I just wouldn't want to see anyone or talk about anything. It's hard to describe to someone that hasn't been through that kind of depression. You just physically can't do anything. Like, I think that there is like a substance issue there, but I think that deep down there's like a sense of like alienation and anxiety. You know what I mean? That was like deeply driving like the moments where like you would drop the ball or go missing or disappear. You know, like, I think that that was, like, a part of it. And I, and, and I, I thought that you were kind of like an island at the time, you know, so... He's totally right here. And that's why he still knows me a lot better than most people on this planet. Although we wrote a lot of songs while getting high, the getting high part ultimately became more important. As things were getting more and more exciting and serious for us, I was withdrawing and becoming pretty unreliable. All the momentum we had built, it seemed, was being derailed. So Basim decided he was going to move to Lahore, Pakistan, where both of our families are from, and pursue his other passion, journalism. 
By late 2007, although I was 25, I felt just as fucked as I did when I was 17. I was doing more serious drugs and wondering if the whole Caminas thing was just a distraction from the piece of shit I always knew myself to be. I was back to wandering the UMass Lowell campus in a daze, except this time, no one really knew that I wasn't even a student. I just showed up to the same parties and stayed up after everyone else passed out, drinking their leftover beers, smoking their leftover joints, and waiting for something outside of me to fix me. By the end of that year though, Bossom sent me an email where he basically told me that he missed having me around and maybe I'd like to join him in Lahore, in Pakistan. He had a sweet apartment where the two of us could live on our own, away from our families. He could even get me a job at the newspaper he was working at. And most importantly, there was a bunch of people that he'd been showing our music to that really wanted to meet me. And I was like, dude, get your guitar, get on a plane, and just fucking come to Pakistan. So that's what I did. Next time on King of the World. God knows how many millions the NYPD has wasted on spying on everyday Muslim life. It's maddening. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We'd love to know what you think and hear about your experiences post 9-11. We're using a tool called Pod Inbox, which allows us to hear directly from you. Visit podinbox.com slash kingoftheworld to send us an audio message directly, some of which we'll play on future episodes. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. King of the World is a production of Rafelion Media. Today's show was produced by me and Asad Butt and with sound design and sound mixing by Mark Anato. Lindsay Gamble is our associate producer. We had production help from Isabel Havens, Mona Baloch, and Erica Reif. Theme song by me, with production help, mixing, and mastering by Nick Sampiello. Original music by Simon Hutchinson. Thanks again to my family, Amma, Aga, Mariam, and Nuna. Special thanks to Taz Ahmed, Dominic Reigns, and Basim Usmani. We'll have links in the show notes to learn more about each of them. Thanks again for listening. I'm Shah Jahan Khan.